Welcome or welcome back if you're one of our regular listeners. Matthew Grant here, but only briefly today because I'm handing over to Henry Gale, who is our lead researcher for parametric insurance at Instec. Now, they say the secret of great management is what happens when you're not there. So I'm about to join you, plug in, and discover how OTT is solving the problem of business interruption, or more commonly known as BI or even CBI. That's contingent business interruption. Now, if you don't speak insurance, then this is a coverage for when a business loses revenue because of something happening either to its own business or to one of its suppliers, like a ship blocking the Suez Canal or a global pandemic. Okay, here's Henry. Great. Well, I'm thrilled to be joined to this podcast by OTT Risk. We've got the Chief Operating Officer, Quentin Seller, and we've got Matt James, who's the Head of Business Development. It's great to have you both with us. Good to be here. Good to be here, Henry. Thanks for having us. Now, for those who haven't heard of OTT Risk, you're an MGA. You were founded in 2020, actually during the COVID pandemic, and tackling the challenge of of non-damaged business interruption insurance. Non-damaged business interruption, or NDBI, is when events like pandemics are don't cause physical damage to a business, but they do cause significant drops in revenue that are outside a business's control. And I'm sure we'll talk through a lot of examples later. And you're using parametric insurance with new types of triggers and indices to solve that problem. You recently went through the Lloyd's Lab in 2022, and you're now focused on some use cases around the digital economy, which I'm quite interested to hear some more about. But I wanted to start really at the beginning. What was the original vision behind OTT Risk as a company? Company and what problem are you solving for whom? So, as you mentioned, we were born during the pandemic, and inevitably that has had quite a big influence on our philosophy and our mission. So, we're founded by David Soloff and Shamath Polyapatia in California, and really the kind of the mission was about creating better, broader, clearer business interruption protection for the hardest hit industries like retail, like hospitality, leisure, really those companies we were seeing suffering during COVID-19. And we were clearly seeing that their existing insurance products weren't fit for their purpose. They weren't fit for modern economy and our crazy universe of risks. We were buoyed by the progress of parametrics in the last few years, seeing it develop, become more commonplace, seeing new data arrive. So it was about moving the parametric kind of evolution forward, stepping away maybe from specific NatCat and weather products, moving towards more all-encompassing business interruption, where you focus less on the peril and more on the outcome. So what actually happened? What was the impact on this business? What was the impact on their neighborhood, the industry? Trying to measure that and let that be the primary driver of the claim calculation. You've mentioned parametric insurance. Could you explain, Matt, in 15 seconds, what is parametric insurance? Don't hold me to the 15 seconds. So parametrics is, broadly speaking, is when you settle an insurance claim based off an index rather than having physical loss assessment. Generally, the index is a function of a proxy data set, which is reflective of, but not actual uh, client data. That was kind of a function of the weather and and agriculture and energy markets. But these days, I think people use parametrics as shorthand really for any structure where you have a highly automatized parametric style payout. So for me these days, parametrics is more of a methodology to get people paid quickly, simply, clearly. 
You're right, parametric is quite a broad term now. So you know a lot about parametric because you used to broker a lot of parametric deals as a parametric broker. So tell me about why you chose to move to OCT and how is what OTT Risk is doing with parametric insurance different from some of those deals which have been done in the past? Getting back to the pandemic, after 10 years working in a big corporate broker, uh, inevitably the thoughts turned to what might be next. And that was when OTT came into existence. And when it was described to me what OTT were doing by Quentin and by David, it really felt to me the opportunity to try and underwrite some of the risks and the products that as a broker, I was trying to broke into the marketplace and was coming up short in terms of underwriters who are willing to offer this kind of cover. So I was seeing demand and I was seeing this evolution, as we mentioned, of parametric insurance, but I wasn't necessarily seeing people exhibit the innovation and the creativity and the willingness to underwrite these kind of products. So COVID was a wake up for us all in terms of how insurance needs to be recalibrated to remain relevant. And this felt like a really good opportunity to do that. I think also just the greater availability of data. I mean, even in those 10 years, looking at, at primarily weather, energy, agriculture, we've seen weather data move from people talking about wind speed, heating degree days, temperature to soil moisture content through to what we look at these days, which is passenger volume data, hotel occupancy data, and even some economic metrics, which are really good proxies for company performance. So it felt like an opportunity to help be part of the next sort of step in parametric insurance. Yeah, I really like that. As there's more data sources, it's, a, it's an evolution or an extension of what the parametric products have been already. But there's also another side to this, which you've touched on, which is that non-damaged business interruption insurance or business interruption insurance products are already out there. But this is a new way to do that. I mean, why is what you're doing different? It's different because, dare I say, traditional parametric insurance Again, in the weather or NatCat space, it starts with a problem. So I've had a drop in revenue, I've had a loss of custom, I've had increased costs of working, but then it digs very, very deeply and becomes very specifically about the peril. You know, how many millimeters in how many days, what wind speed, how far does the eye of the storm need to be? It's very, very much about the peril and you have to model the heck out of it to make sure it calibrates with company performance. But then once the policy is live, no one is looking at what actually happens. What is the outcome of this thing that happened? You are just looking at that metric which pertains to that peril. And what OTT does, it does a lot of the work that I stated at the beginning in terms of calibrating certain perils, not necessarily just one, calibrating those perils to an economic outcome. But then it models and prices the chances of the index dropping to a particular point. And that index is not peril specific. It's about the industry and it's about the company. So it's really about having payouts based off the outcome. What did the windstorm do? What did the weather do? What did the strikes and riots uh, do to my number of seated diners, etc.? So it's really, I think, moving from parametrics associated with peril to uh, an outcome-based approach. So in that sense, it's much broader cover it's generally kind of all risk with exclusions rather than named perils. Can you maybe sort of expand a bit more on some examples? So if you're talking to a hotel in Miami, you look at their location, you look at the similar hotels in the region, and you look at the drop-off in occupancy rate or revenue per available room for people like them in their location. And you pay out when that cohort of businesses falls below a predetermined level of loss as adjudicated by this index. That could be caused by windstorm. It could also be caused by 
a strike or a riot. It could also be caused by a massive fire in the neighborhood, which essentially closes things down. The second model is what we'll kind of go on to talk about a bit later, perhaps, which is platforms and marketplaces, where we're able to use actual individuals' financial results, individual bookings data, individual efficiency data in terms of how the asset they're putting on this platform is being converted to revenues, sales, or nights booked, etc., and actually using their own data, aligning it with a parametric methodology in terms of organizing a payout. Maybe let's turn to that a second example you had. I mean, when you talk about platforms, marketplaces, I know that the broader digital economy is a focus area for you. Could you maybe give some examples of what sort of platforms you mean in, in the digital economy and, and what that looks like? So actually, the digital economy is quite a broad term and it can mean different things for different people. What we usually mean here is that we are targeting consumer marketplaces. So for instance, one company that aggregates and acts as a peer-to-peer marketplace company for different consumers and users. One company that enables the exchange of goods and services on behalf of some kind of participants. So taking the short-term rental industry, you have plenty of companies that are so-called online travel agents that will aggregate individual listings, whether they're hotels or business owners that have properties and enable them to list those properties on that marketplace to get some demand from someone who needs a roof tonight. So that's the kind of idea. The usual suspects are Airbnb, Expedia, Bookings.com. We look at our verticals in the digital economy. Some of those are food delivery. So here the ecosystem is drivers, diners, and restaurants, but also ride-hailing, ride-sharing, e-commerce platforms, merchant software, and payment services. To sum it up, it's a huge opportunity because you know most of those economies and marketplaces, they're already a very large network with critical mass. They've grown over the past decade. And for us, it's really attractive because it's a, a nice way of getting access to a pool of user risks that are already geographically diversified. And from an underwriting standpoint, it's a, a great attribute because diversification is hard when you're a new company, you're always concentrated. But if you can access an already existing portfolio, that's great. And beyond that, Matthew kind of touched on this. They have a, a wealth of data at the individual level that really helps us on the pricing side. So can you touch a bit more on what that risk is? What does business interruption look like for those types of platforms and their users? We're looking at this from the same lens of industry and geography. So whilst an hotel in Miami will be the subject of disruptions like NatCat, an individual owner of properties will have just the same risk. So it's about covering the same kind of risk, but instead of going towards large companies, we are now targeting very small business owners or property managers that probably need that cover more than anyone else. Because if you're Marriott or Hilton, you have sufficient cash and you have all kinds of sophisticated financial management at your disposal. Those property owners don't have that. And until now, we haven't really cracked the code to distribute this at scale. But this is really the reason why we're just taking the same product and ID and delivering it through the platform to those businesses. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting way of putting it. I mean, if I've got a room in my house that I'm letting out to holiday makers, 
you know, I'll be just as affected as the hotels. If people aren't traveling to the country or my area for a specific reason, whatever that reason is. But I guess if I'm relying on that income, I'm less able to, to make up that loss. So where does OTT risk come in? What can you do for the users of these platforms? So marketplaces, we see those as consumer-centric businesses. They're continually innovating. What we've seen recently is that they are doing a push in embedded financial services, whereby basically the marketplace starts offering ancillary services on top of their core product, such as financing. So you've seen a lot of consumer marketplace offering loans to bolster the user's business for growth and so on. Uh, the reason why they're doing that is they're just trying to improve their general offering with value-added services to differentiate themselves from their competition. Essentially, because they're a consumer business, it's all about brand power and it's all about being the best brand in their own industry. So we really want to position our revenue protection insurance to enable that differentiation. So that's the value proposal we offer to those uh, marketplaces. It's to offer more services to their users, in other words, downside protection. So for the user, downside protection means enabling business. What do we mean by this? With COVID, we've seen a lot of workers that have been furloughed, that have quit their job, or that were working from home and had plenty of time to think about personal projects. And we've seen a lot of growth in some of those short-term rental platforms with new users taking on mortgages to get on properties just to generate uh, a new income string for, for themselves because of all the uncertainty going on. However, being an entrepreneur is <laughs> uncertain business by itself. And <laughs> we know it more than anyone because we're a small company ourselves. And so if you can provide to each of those users some kind of floor of revenue that they will always make, which is pegged somehow to the fixed cost or the mortgage payment they have to make, that can enable that business growth. So really it's about enabling growth for the platform and bolstering users to get in business. An important point to specify is that obviously each insurance product has a cost. We're trying to design that product so that it's free or costless for the user and that it's rather distributed through the platform. So for example, just by being on a different tier of the service in the platform, you can access to different services and as such is already pre-financed or subsidized by the marketplace itself. Really, we're targeting people who are making not just a bit of cash on the side as like a hobby, but really are really deriving an income from this. And the reason for that is because they need it more. And the second reason is because there's more data, it's less volatile, there's a track record that we can draw upon for pricing and for setting benchmarks. So really, we're targeting people who are not just kind of casual users, but the people that rely upon these platforms for a significant part of their income. So I'd love to hear then about for that user who really relies on this income, what does it look like in practice for them to experience this protection? I'll break it down in very simple terms, but the general idea is that we're going to look at metrics that very well represent your business revenue, and we're going to design a payment based on what you've earned in the same period last year or over a specific historical time frame, adjusting for seasonality. So for instance, 
if you were a business making $100 a month, we would maybe insure 60% of that or $60 in the coming period. So seasonally adjusted, that's all provided you're behaving ethically because you could take off your listing from the platform because now you're covered, but that's not going to work because we can see all of that. Basically, it's in simple terms is you're used to earn X, $100. We're going to cover a percentage of that, say 50 to 70%. And if you didn't make that at the end of the next period, we will top you up. We are going to have all kinds of eligibility requirements to control for the continuity of your behavior and the continuity of supply of your goods or services on the marketplace itself. So it's really only meant to pay out when there is a fortuitous shock or event that impacts your ability to make business. It's also meant to incentivize users to keep their listings or you know their service on the marketplace. Hence why the marketplace might be willing to pay for it itself. If we stick with property rentals, say you were listing your property like, I don't know, 90 days over the previous quarter. Now you're going to keep it available as much over the next period. We're going to control for that by making sure that at least you're making it available two or three weeks before the check-in date so that you're not just purposely waiting till the last minute to try to list it so that you don't get any guests. If you experience materially less booking over a season because it did not snow, if you were chalet in a ski resort, or because there was some civil protest in your city that totally prevented tourism from coming in, then we would pay claims based on the formula that I described before. So here, the payout would be based on a daily insured rate that basically is multiplied by the number of days where the property wasn't booked. It's going to be industry specific, but to keep it simple, we cover a percentage of what you're usually making as revenue. The protection that's offered from the platform to the user generally is not insurance. It is a guarantee, which is part of their service to them. So that itself is not insurance. What is insurance is us protecting the balance sheet liability this platform now has to their member and the portfolio of members. So it's really an insurance which protects aggregate losses over the whole portfolio reaching a certain point. So just to be to be very clear, this is a liability insurance policy protecting the platform against the guarantee that they have offered their members. Great. And I'm intrigued to hear more about how you came to this use case, because we mentioned earlier, there's a whole lot of different industries and different types of customers who are impacted by business interruption. People who are users of these sharing economy platforms, obviously very heavily impacted, and yet they've got less liquidity, they have more cash flow needs. How did you come to the digital economy use case? Well, it was probably thanks to, in part, thanks to the Lloyd's Lab. It was a great experience for us. It really generated a lot of focus, a lot of opportunity for us to come together physically as a team and be in one place and iterate on a product. What we wanted to do was to create more of a a tech-driven product, which was scalable, and we wanted to build partnerships with Lloyd's. In the process, I think we were pleased to come into contact with the Apollo iBot syndicate uh, led by Chris Moore. And they we're really very forthcoming in working with us on the product and thinking about how it might be applicable to the digital economy. 
primarily because they're real innovators in this space. They're market leaders. They've got a lot of clients who have been seeking this kind of protection. It was a really nice opportunity for those 10 weeks of the lab to, to dig into the conversation with Apollo and think about how all the work we'd done thus far, which was around the risk, around the interruptions, around the modeling, how we could use that. And instead of applying it to a sort of alternative risk transfer, single large corporate product, how could we think about introducing that to the digital economy? So really, it was an opportunity for us to take what we'd done, revise our distribution strategy from kind of bricks and mortar corporates due to these, these platforms and marketplaces. And we were really encouraged to have that conversation and relationship with Apollo, who we now have a line slip with, who were really, really enthusiastic, believed in the product. And that's helped us move forward from where we were at the end of last year through to this quite exciting position we find ourselves in now. That's great. Congratulations on that partnership with Apollo. I mean, it sounds like it's very much a, a demand-driven move where Apollo is already speaking to its customers who fit in this type of space and they're looking for this type of solution. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. Definitely demand-led. I think we feel much more comfortable in this distribution strategy because talent-wise, we're a team of data scientists. And I think this approach, which is channeled through the digital economy, it feels much closer to our core technology skills. So I think we're playing to our strengths and I think we're pretty enthusiastic about the means of um, originating deals, but also allowing them to scale, not just new deals, but allowing individual deals to scale within themselves. And you mentioned there you're all data scientists. How does all the data behind this work? I imagine people listening to this are thinking these are some very hard to ensure risks that you're tackling, uh, non-damaged business interruption, lots of different perils associated with it. Where do you start in your modeling and, and pricing those sorts of risks? So I'll try to keep it concise, but it's obviously a very big topic. So usually when insurers think of non-damaged business interruption, they often point to systemic type of risk like pandemics. The reality is that you have like a big spectrum of events and NDBI risks that don't necessarily are systemic and that are localized and they can be non-accumulating in an insurance portfolio. So really what's going on here is that they're difficult to price, like you're pointing out, in traditional property terms at least. And that's one of the key reasons why there is such a protection gap today. So from our standpoint, when you're using business data allows us to focus on the economic outcome of those insurable events, whether they're physical or not. So in other words, your sales might drop because your property has been damaged or because there was a protest down the street. And we can measure both through the data and both are localized to the insured. So talking about data, we look at different data sets, both in the public and private space to better quantify those risks and ultimately underwrite them. So we partner with highly reputable data providers. That's important when you're offering a, an insurance policy based on that data. So big names like MasterCard, STR, and Skytra, all big brands in their own in industry. So they, these guys provide us with high-quality streams of high-frequency data, such as credit card transactions, traffic volume, occupancy rate. That helps us form a view on the risk in the industries we are covering. Beyond that data, we also enhance all of that with our own capabilities and proprietary data by extracting it from the web using things like natural language processing. Bringing that all together, we can start looking at pricing those risks. So we will look historically at how data index, for example, performed in the face of different perils. 
For example, let's say we are insuring an hotel based on its occupancy rate. So a policy that pays out weekly after a 10% drop in weekly occupancy, that will have a very different risk profile to policy that pays quarterly after 50% drop in quarterly occupancy rate. Like the former is much more likely to pay more often because it captures all kinds of events from bad weather to transport network interruptions to things very specific to the insured, whereas the latter would only capture very large shocks that have a tremendous impact on their industry and as such a very big claim severity profile, but a very low frequency. The beauty though of our approach is that because we have all that data, we can recreate all the claims history of one index over the observed period. And that's useful for pricing. If we look at historical claims through the spectrum of how frequent they were, what was their severity, and how long were there, because you have events that are very sharp and you have a recovery behind it, but you also have very long duration event, and that's important when you price. We load price based on that catalog of known and observed peril in the insured data, but also factor for events that are so-called not in data and that we can observe elsewhere on the other data sets or through the catalog of historical catastrophes that is well described in the public domain. Last point is when it comes to operating with marketplaces, we can benefit from their data. We talked about it before, and usually here we would use an API to get the user level data, which basically offers us a bigger breadth of uh, geographic data and single points of data by user, which makes our model even more efficient. We talk a lot about different approaches to modeling on this podcast. It sounds like what you're doing is a combination of some of the catastrophe models for traditional perils and also for non-traditional perils with actually looking at different data sets because you're looking at indexes which are correlated to revenue, looking at how those are performed over different periods of time, understanding which events, as you mentioned, are sort of longer events that take place over a period of time or sort sharp shocks as well. We mentioned at the start, you're an MGA, you're sitting in between then the, the insurance company and the broker or the distribution. And that means that you've been delegated underwriting authority by an insurer so that you can underwrite and bring your data science on their behalf and they bring the balance sheet. I mean, could you just maybe explain a little bit more about why you chose that business model and how you fit in with different players in the insurance space? Sure. I think everyone knows by this point, the people who listen to this podcast, that being an MGA is a really good entry point into insurance for people with ideas and innovation. It's a really kind of light touch way of being able to get into the marketplace and structure, underwrite and sell a product. As you said, we do rely on insurance capacity. So Apollo uh, iBot syndicates sit behind us and they have to kind of agree with, ratify uh, what we're putting in front of them and ultimately bind with their permission. The work, as Quentin was describing, is is deep. There's a lot of expertise required. So, for a large a large insurer underwriting PNC business, it might not make sense to invest in a team to underwrite this kind of business. It makes much more sense to delegate to some degree authority capacity to take on these new emerging risks in a new and emerging marketplace to see how it develops. 
and put the experts on the other end of the phone with the client rather than investing in a, in a new team. So it's a really pragmatic and quite efficient way of doing business. For us, this is a great place to be at this point, And it's a great opportunity to work with incumbent insurers within Lloyd's for the most part of the last kind of five months. And that's a great brand to be associated with. So we're delighted to have OTT Risk as part of the Instech community. You joined us last year. Tell us about why OTT Risk has joined Instech. So I guess I'll break it down in three points. And what drove us to Instech specifically was to access a large community of brokers and underwriters to socialize our products and ideas. So I guess that was a deciding factor for us. You know, you as part of your membership, you have a lot of our own target audience. But really, I can talk about two other benefits that we are seeing today and we're not expecting in the first place. So for instance, great brand awareness opportunities like this podcast or like spotlight interviews you're doing from time to time that helps us share our latest news and product ideas and obviously generate new relationships on the back of that. On the flip side, as a member, it's also great to see other people do interviews and staying on top of the industry by looking at use product launches and the parametric report last year was great. Lastly, I guess the community events are great to meet people. That's what we've seen with Deloitte's lab. I mean, the insurance industry is mostly relationship based. So any opportunity to network with like-minded entrepreneurs or stakeholders in that industry it's one we should take, and that's something I should encourage any member to do themselves. Yeah, I really appreciate that, and especially what you said there about sharing ideas. And I'm sure there'll be lots of people listening to this podcast to business interruption in the digital economy might be a new idea, something they've not engaged with yet. And I definitely encourage you to, to reach out to these guys and learn more about what they're doing. Maybe just to close off, what should people remember about OTT risk? I think people should consider OTT broadly a team of inventive data scientists, a lot of whom are from outside of the insurance ecosystem, so approaching this with fresh eyes, but data science paired with Lloyd's risk capital. So I think that puts us in a really good position to innovate, but also to work with incumbent partners to drive better products for individuals and for businesses. Specifically in terms of the use case, we are focused on marketplaces, platforms, and OTT is all about embedding protection within those platforms to make these companies, make these platforms able to invest in insurance as a means for growth. So integrate insurance as part of the product rather than just having insurance as a, a boring, necessary annual spend. It's about trying to create relevance for insurance and to also capitalize on this marketplace economy, which is growing rapidly and I think is, is getting better, but uh, is underserved for some of these members and owners. Those members and owners are seeking resilience against shock, unusual interruptions, many of which are becoming becoming common, if you forgive the, uh, the irony. And I don't think the infrastructure of insurance is there at the moment to protect them. So that's what we're trying to, that's what we're trying to help out with. Invest in insurance as a means for growth. I think that's a great tagline. It's a good sort of representation of how the way that insurance can be serving a real good in the world, as well as... Um, it's on my t-shirt perfect <laughs> great well it's been great thanks so much quentin thanks matt for joining me today on the podcast thanks henry it was great pleasure thanks for having us 